So if you have your Bible, again, uh, Luke chapter 16 is where we will be. Uh, We're going to read through the passage first. It's not going to be up on the screen, so if you have your Bible, take it uh, out with you. If you don't have a Bible, there's some out in the lobby um, that you can grab, you can take home with you. It's our gift to you. Uh, If you just have a phone, you can look it up online or on an app. Uh, We're going to be starting in verse 19 uh, today. And it's our uh, habit to preach through books of the Bible together. We've been in Luke for a while. And if you've been with us, uh, you know that uh, we did not end at verse 18 last time. We ended at verse 17. And now we're on 19. David, why are we skipping verses of the Bible, you might ask. Don't worry, we'll come back to it. In a couple weeks, we're coming back to this verse. Don't worry. But we are going to just start at verse 19 this week. So I'm going to read through all the text uh, and then... Uh, we'll find uh, three points uh, from it. So uh, read with me, Luke verse, uh, chapter 16, uh, verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, you can just listen along. Uh, this is Jesus speaking. He says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So that's God's word to us uh, this morning. Uh, As we begin to think about it, though, uh, we need to answer uh, one quick question. And and that first is, is this describing something that has actually happened to someone? Is this a story of a historical event? Or is this some kind of parable? And you might have that question because it seems a little bit unusual for one of Jesus' parables. For for one thing, uh, somebody is named. That's the the first time that we see in in any parable in the Bible that there's a character who's named Lazarus. So that's unusual. But what we also see is that uh, the parable begins in the way that Jesus begins almost all of his other parables. Uh, There was a man, or in this case, there was a rich man. And we, we see that throughout Luke's gospel, that Jesus begins that six other times. That's how he begins parables. And there was a man. There was a rich man. It's how he began the parable of the dishonest manager. It's how he began the parable of the prodigal son we looked at just over the last uh, couple weeks. So all those seem to say, okay, it seems to be a parable, but, there, but Lazarus, uh, he's, he's named, and that, that's weird. 
And we're going to get to why he's named in a second, but it has to do with the meaning of the parable. So we'll look at that as, as we go through. Uh, but a, as a parable, we need to understand that the parable Jesus gives, it's intended to teach us principles, points. It, it's not meant to be an exhaustive picture of the afterlife. So it, it's, it's good, there's details there, but we don't want to press into those details too much uh, just because it's a parable. It's meant to, to teach us uh, some principles, some truths. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these uh, three points, three principles that I think Jesus is teaching us uh, from this uh, parable. And so the first uh, principle is this. Beware of comforts in this life. Beware of comforts in this life. Uh, Jesus begins the parable by telling us of a rich man and a poor man. And he paints this contrast between them. Uh, it's not just that he tells us that there's a rich man. He really, he really paints this vivid picture of what this richness looks like. He tells us he's clothed in purple linen, fine, fine cloth, the, these, these amazing garments. This is the best thing that money could buy at the time. This is, this is the, the clothing of, of royalty. This guy, he feasts every day, it says. Just amazing feast parties. This is not just like Cactus Club once a week for date night. This is like fine dining every night downtown, right? This is Michelin star chef in your home kind of dining. This is like amazing food, the best that money can buy. This rich man, he's not just rich. He's crazy rich, right? These are the, the types of people whose shoes are worth more than your house, Right? That, that's kind of the image that Jesus is trying to paint. He's painting, this guy is the wealthiest. He's the most well-off, the most comfortable you can be in this life, this rich man. And he contrasts that with Lazarus. Now, Lazarus, uh, this is not the Lazarus uh, that we see in John chapter 11 that Jesus raises uh, from the dead. It's not that. Lazarus was a common name. Uh, it, it was the, the Greek translation of the name Eleazar. And Eleazar, the name means he whom God has helped. And that helps us understand some things, because it's kind of ironic how Jesus introduces this, this parable. He basically says, there was a poor man whose name was he whom God has helped. Really? Because when we read about Lazarus, it doesn't seem like God has helped him very much. Here's this guy, he's sitting at a gate, the gate of the rich man, probably begging for money. He's desiring just the scraps of food. It's not just like he's poor, like he can't buy a second car. He's like poor, it doesn't have food. Right? He's just looking in the garbage, scrounging around whatever he can find. And he says he's covered in sores. He's got this sickness of some kind, some pain, some anguish, some agony that he's in right now. And he can't get relief from it. And to make matters worse, the dogs are coming and licking his sores. And dogs in that time, uh, they were not like man's best friend. Uh, dogs were like impure, disgusting animals. They were the scavengers. Right? Dogs were not the things you took on hikes in little pouches when you went with you. No. Dog, dogs were like the lowest thing. You didn't want to be called a dog. And here, Lazarus, he's being painted as, as lower than the dogs. He, he, the, the lowest you can get in this life? Lazarus. So you've got the contrast, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich and the poor. And the interesting thing is that the rich man, he, he, although Lazarus is sitting outside his gate, he never comes and, and helps the, the man. He would have walked by him every day, would have seen him there. He had all the opportunity. He had all the means available to help him. He never did. And then they both die. And in death, everything changes. There's this radical reversal that happens. We see that uh, in verse 22. It says, the poor man died 
and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, a being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And so you have this radical reversal. that The one who had the most comforts and pleasures of life is now in anguish. The one who was in anguish and pain and misery is now in comfort. The one who is rich has become poor. The poor has become rich. The one who wouldn't give to a beggar, he's now begging himself. There's this radical reversal. Lazarus at Abraham's side. The rich man in Hades. And so... What is that? What, what is at Abraham's side? What, what is Hades? Well, what we see here in this, this parable, uh, it, it kind of accords with what we see in the rest of the scripture, but what happens after we die, which is that we are both body and soul together now. And when our body dies, our soul goes to one of two places. In, in an intermediate state, until the resurrection, when Jesus returns, our body and our soul will come back together. That, that's the Christian hope, that we will be resurrected We'll live together in the new heavens and the new earth. But there's this intermediate state, this place that the parable calls Abraham's side, a place of, of heaven, of the righteous. And there's also a place of the unrighteous. It's called here Hades, translation of Sheol. We might call it hell. There's a, there's a place of where people are now experiencing a foretaste of what will come in the final judgment. And if you want more information about what that is, there's, there's a great sermon that Pastor Matt did about two years ago when we were doing our End of the Beginning series. Uh, you can go online, YouTube, or podcast. You can look at that. It's called What Happens After We Die. and just spells all of that out in more detail. But we see here now in this reversal that Lazarus' name starts to make sense. In, in life, it didn't make sense. He whom God has helped. But now look, he's in the comfort. God has helped him. The rich man didn't help him, but God has helped him. He whom God has helped. But it's important to see that this reversal, it doesn't happen because the rich man is rich or because Lazarus is poor. It's not like, oh, you're rich. You go here. You're poor. You go here. It's not because of the riches. Why is it then? Well, we see it in verse 30. The rich man, he calls out, uh, to Abraham, uh, look at what he, he says in, in verse 30 to Abraham. He's calling out about his, his brothers who are still alive. He says, oh, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Right? He sees that the, the, the reason I'm in Hades, the reason I don't want my brothers to be in Hades, is they need to repent. Repentance is the reason that he is there. And, and so if his lack of repentance... If, if that's the reason why he is in Hades, why does Jesus make such a big deal about his riches? If, if, if his repentance is why he's there, why, why make such a big deal about the riches and the poor? Because it was his riches that were keeping him from repentance. He's busy with the comforts of life. 
Right? He, he was there. You think he's walking by the gate. Abraham or uh, Lazarus is there by the side. Why doesn't he help him? He's got all the means to do it. He could help him. Why doesn't he do it? He's got parties to go to. Clothes to try on. Food to try out. He's busy. There's pleasures of life. He's enjoying himself. It's a lot of work to care for someone. The comforts of life are the thing that's keeping him from repentance. And repentance, it just means simply to turn away from our sin. It's a turning away from sin, from wrongdoing. And true repentance is always accompanied by faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins. Right? It's, repentance is, I turn away, and I know that those sins I've turned away from have been forgiven. But it, his riches, his comfort, his prayers, his, his enjoyment of those things, his love for those things are the things that's hindering him from doing that. Because he doesn't want to leave them. He loves them. And, and this idea that, that riches, cares of life. They, they can keep us from God's kingdom. Uh, this is not just here in this parable. This is all throughout the book of Luke. In fact, it's one of uh, the main themes of Jesus' teaching. He talks a lot about money and that money is, is a, can be a hindrance uh, to our entering the kingdom of God. If we just remember back a few weeks, back in verse 13 and 14, uh, Jesus uh, speaks to the Pharisees there and this is what he says. He says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. They both can't be your master. Either money's your master or God's your master. But the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, money is their master. They heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Of course we can have money and God. Of course we can have that. We can love money and love God. It's not what Jesus says. If you go back to chapter 8 of Luke, Jesus tells a parable of the the sower. There's four soils. Uh, Three of those soils don't produce fruit. They don't reach the harvest. One of them does. But one of those soils that doesn't, it's the thorny soil where the seed is planted. It grows up. The thorns choke it out. What does Jesus say about those thorns? What are they? They're the cares, riches, and pleasures of life. They choke out a believer's faith. Or if we just go forward a couple chapters to chapter 18 in Luke, uh, Jesus meets with what we call the rich young ruler. There's a guy that comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you need to keep all the commandments perfectly. And the guy says, done, got it, check. Jesus says, so Jesus tests him a little bit. And this is what Jesus says. Chapter 18, verse 20. And Jesus says, one thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He was so rich, he didn't want to give it up. He was attached to it. It was the thing that brought him joy and happiness. Was that. He said, I don't know if I want to leave that for Jesus. I don't know if that's actually as good as this. 
See, what we see with the rich man in our story is this guy, man, he thought he had it all together. He wanted comfort. He wanted pleasure. He pursued it. He had it all. But where did that end him? Where did that pursuit end him? With the very opposite of the thing he was pursuing. He pursued comfort and he, he got agony. The, the very thing that he wanted most was the thing he didn't get. Because he pursued it in the wrong thing. He pursued it through wealth, through cares, through pleasures of life. And so the warning for us of this parable is beware of comfort in this life. Pursuing the comforts in this life, it may keep us from finding it in the next. Not because these comforts are bad, but because when we pursue those things, they distract us from God. They distract us from repentance and faith. I'll give you just a, a quick example from my own life. Just seeing that uh, in the, the last few weeks as we were on a vacation as a family. It was tons of fun. It was great. We enjoyed our time. But here's the thing. At the end of our time, I'll tell you, it wasn't a spiritual win. Because during that time, uh, my devotions really suffered. I, I wasn't really focused on glorifying God and enjoying him forever. I was more focused on enjoying my food. Like that, that was the thing I found pleasure in. That was the thing that I was thinking about. Oh, what are we doing today? What are we off to? What, what food are we having? I'm, I'm constantly thinking about the, the things of this world. Instead of enjoying Christ. We have to remember who Jesus is telling this parable to. He's not telling it to people who thought they were outside of the kingdom of God. He's telling it to the Pharisees. They, they thought they were in. They thought they would be with Abraham. They thought they'd be in paradise. And the reason Jesus is telling this parable, he's saying, you're the lovers of money. And you think you're in, but your love of money? Man, it's distracted you. It's brought you aside. And you might find yourself on the other side than you think. That's why he's telling it. And here's my worry. My worry is that many of us who are Christians here in the West will find that the comforts of this life are as good as it gets for us. That we may enjoy life now, but we may find ourselves in anguish later. That we've let the comforts of life distract us from Jesus. And put our hope in temporary fleeting pleasures, food, clothing, entertainment, instead of the everlasting pleasure of Christ. Don't get me wrong, those things aren't bad. God has made everything good. He's given us good gifts to enjoy them. The problem isn't the things. The problem is we love the things. We live for them. The problem is that they have become our master. They're the things that we think about, that we read articles about, that we daydream about instead of Christ. Our joy, our happiness, 
Does it come from Jesus or it comes from the comforts in this world? Because if we are really uh, on, on our way to pick up the lottery winnings of heaven, that's where we're headed. That's where we're going. There's incredible riches to come. Why, why are we going off the path to pick up dimes and nickels? Like there is a greater comfort coming. There's greater joy that's coming, found in Christ. Beware the comforts of this life. That's Jesus' first point. Beware the comforts of this life. Jesus' second point. Jesus' second point is that death secures our eternal state. Death secures our eternal state. Uh, read with me verses 22 and 24 again. It says, uh, The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. And so we see that this rich man here in, in torment here. There's anguish that he has. In, in this intermediate state, we call that hell. And th this is, the, this is the, the place where I think many of us become uncomfortable. We become uncomfortable with this idea of a, a place where people are punished for, for the things that they've done in this life. Where justice is served. The people that Jesus was talking to, they didn't have a problem with hell. That, that, was, that was normal in their worldview. They believed in that, believed that there would be a torment. Uh, the Pharisees, though, they just didn't believe they would be there. They believed in it. Their problem was they didn't think they would be there. But for us, nowadays, just the idea of hell, that's very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable to our culture, very uncomfortable even for us in the church. Because I, I think one of the problems we find is that it feels unjust unfair. Like we know that, you know, we are not perfect. We'd all say that. But we've, we feel like, I know we've done some wrong things, but we've also done a lot of good things. We're mostly good. And in fact, th these bad things are not really that bad compared to some people. Why? Just because I haven't believed something, God is going to give me punishment and anguish? That seems unjust. But is it possible, is it possible not that the, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, possible not that the, that the punishment is overkill, is it possible that we've underestimated the crime? Is it possible that we don't actually know ourselves as well as we think we know them? That our, our evil deeds are more wicked than we know. See, because it, it, we shouldn't judge the, the punishment by what we think of the crime. The punishment actually helps us understand the crime. That's true, actually, in life as well. If you're a kid here, uh, you know this by experience. Because if, if your parents, uh, you do something wrong, your parents come and they bring you in and they say, okay, you've done something wrong, they give you a stern warning, 
and then they send you off, you're kind of like, okay, I know I did something wrong, but it wasn't that bad. Like, it was just a warning. It's fine. But if you do something wrong and your parents bring you in and they talk with you and then they say, and because of what you've done, there's no screens for a month. You're like, what? This must, I must have done something really bad. Why? Because my parents wouldn't punish me like that if there wasn't actually something I've done wrong. The parents are trying to teach you that what you're doing is actually wrong. That's why they've come up with this incredible punishment. See, God has given us an, an image of hell, an understanding of what that is, so that we would understand the nature of what our crime is. It's not just that we've hurt other people. It's that we've rebelled against him. He is our creator, righteous and good, the king. And he has made us to serve him, to love him and follow him. And we've said, no thanks. I'd rather do things my way. I'd rather pursue my own comforts. It's not just that we've you know, slapped God in the face. We've taken the crown off his head and put it on ourselves. Our sin is not trivial. It's not light. This is a holy God we have rebelled against. And hell paints a picture of how bad it is. Because we, in our own natural state, it's hard for us to grasp it. It's hard for us to understand what that is like. But hell helps us know. It, realize, it helps us realize the evilness of our sin. And so if hell is a, an idea that you have questions about, that you're wrestling over, can I just encourage you? Uh, just find someone to talk it with over lunch. Talk with it over lunch. Say, hey, let, let's talk about this. These are the questions I have. Go out for lunch, go out for coffee, talk it over. I'm sure your friends would be happy to, to think through that with you. But we see uh, here again this rich man, he's in torment. And he wants the torment uh, to end. Uh, we saw that he, he didn't want just to cross uh, into the Abraham's side. right? That's kind of what I thought when I read through the passage the first time. You're like, oh, he just wants out of Hades. But that's actually not what happens. He says, no, no, send Lazarus to me. Come have him serve me and end my anguish. He doesn't want, he doesn't want to go to the place of the righteous. He just wants the anguish uh, to end. But Lazarus, or Abraham's response is that uh, Lazarus can't come to you because there's a chasm that's been fixed. Uh, we see that in verses 25 and 26. Uh, it says, but Abraham said, child, uh, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there uh, to us. So Abraham's response is, you know what? It, I'm sorry. It, it can't happen. The road's closed. The bridge, it's gone. There's a chasm. You, you can't cross from one to the other. And this is, the point that Jesus is trying to make is, is that death secures your eternal state of heaven or of hell. There's no second chances. There's no crossing over. There's no purgatory middle ground where you can maybe work it off and then get in. 
No, Jesus says, death secures your eternal state. This idea for us can be both an encouragement and a warning. An encouragement and a warning. I say encouragement because if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in him, then the encouragement is simply that there, there is nothing in this universe that can take you out of heaven. That, that your place is secure there. After death, you're secure. See, we've been running this race of faith our whole lives. And death, death is the finish line. When you get to death, you've been fighting to stay true to Jesus, to walk with him, to avoid the temptations and trials of life. And you're trying to get there and you cross the finish line and you can rest. Because nothing can take you out. Satan's power cannot pull you out. You cannot cross from there to there. You are secure. But it's also a warning. It's also a warning because it puts great emphasis on what we believe about Jesus now. In this life. Because there is no second chance after death. Many of us have lived our lives and we've been thinking about this. We think, well, maybe, maybe I can plead my case. Maybe there'll be another chance. The Bible offers no second chances. Your, your second chance is now. Jesus offers a, a way. Right? The great problem of our whole lives is that we are separated from God by a great chasm. That's the whole picture of the Bible. God and man are separated. The, the message of the gospel is Jesus has been the bridge. The bridge is there. It's available for us to take simply by faith, by trusting that what he did on the cross pays for our sin. But there will come a day when that bridge is removed. And so it's very important that we think about this now, that we lay hold of Christ, that we cling to him now because death secures our eternal state. That's the second thing Jesus wants us to see. The third, the third point of this parable is that the problem is our heart. The problem is our, our heart. Uh, read with me verses uh, 27 uh, to 30. And, and he, this is the rich man speaking to uh, Abraham, and he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, uh, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So he realizes the direness of the situation. He realizes that they need a warning, because th this life is, is the time for their decision, for the time for them to repent and, and turn. But Abraham basically responds by saying, they have everything they need. Uh, look, look there at his response in verse 29. He says, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Uh, Moses and the prophets was just their way of summarizing what we would call the Old Testament, all of their scripture of God's word at that point. And Abraham's point is, they don't need someone to come back from the dead. They, they have Moses and the prophets. They have everything they need. God's word is enough. That actually the message that's contained there, that's all you need. You don't need miraculous signs. You don't, you don't need all of you. If they come, great. But what, what do you need? You need a message. A message that someone has come and paid for your sin. But the rich man, 
it, he doesn't believe it's enough, though. Look at how he responds. And he said, no, uh, Father Abraham, but if someone comes to them from the dead, they will repent. He says, no, 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 if there's a miracle, no, no, trust me, then they'll believe. They, they can't believe it, just the words of the scriptures. No, no, they need something else. But Abraham's response, he said to him, but if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. He's saying, if, if you're not going to listen here, then you know what? A miraculous person coming back from the dead, it's not going to convince you. Because the problem isn't that you don't know. The problem isn't that you, you, that you don't have a sign. The problem is your heart. The problem is you don't want to. They didn't want to repent. They didn't want to believe. In many ways, they'd already made up their minds. In fact, we see this exact thing happen uh, at Jesus' death and resurrection. In Matthew 28, it describes how Jesus is di uh, he dies. He's buried in a tomb. Uh, and, and the Pharisees, they know Jesus has been talking about being raised from the dead. So they, they get two Roman guards to go and guard the tomb. And they say, okay, guard it so no one can steal the body and, and claim that he rose from the dead. So they do that. And on the third day, the guards are there. And angels appear to them, bright, shining light. They're blinded. The angels proclaim that Jesus has risen. The guards, in fear, they run away. They come, they gather the religious leaders of the day. And the religious leaders hear the guards tell of what happens and they say, wow, Jesus did what he said. Praise Jesus, he's alive. No, that's not what they say. No. You know what they do? They hear this report of the guards and they say, tell them the disciples took the body and here's some money. Go. Wait, they, they saw an angel. They saw it. They're coming. They're telling you what Jesus said he did. He was going to do. He did it. And you're saying, no, no, just, just keep it quiet. Don't tell anyone. Why? They didn't want to believe. Their minds were made up. The problem was in their heart. And I think that can be us sometimes too. Maybe you're here and, and you've been thinking about following Christ. You know what it says, but you've been putting it off. Because you wonder, okay, well, maybe if there's some other sign, if God reveals himself to me in some other way, then I'll believe. But the, the, the message here is God's word is enough. Even for us who are Christians, there can be a hesitancy to repent when we know what God's word says. We know what it says. We know that there's sin in our life that we need to continually keep repenting of. But we just wait. We say, well, maybe if there's something else. Some, if something happens in my life, then, then I'll do this. If this thing changes, then maybe I'll address it. Maybe I'll think about it again in a month or two. But we know. It's really clear. The problem isn't that we don't know. The problem is we don't want to. We don't, we don't want it. And that's where God's word's really encouraging for us. 
Because it's not just the, the warning. It's not just telling us, here's the problem in our lives. It's actually providing us with the solution. And the solution is not, okay, well, you just need to be better. The solution is not, okay, you've done the wrong thing. Now just be a better person. Make it up. No, the problem is you can't. The problem's inside you. The problem is your heart. You actually need someone else to be better for you. And that's why Jesus came. He came and lived a perfect life, perfectly righteous. And then he came and died on the cross. Why? So that the anguish, pain, torment that we all deserve, hell itself, that he took on. Why? So we can have the comfort. It's ours. It's free. And it's simply a matter not of being better, but of trusting that that's true. You turn from your sin, and you trust that the sin you turn from is forgiven. Because of him. Because of his perfect life. You are now seen by God as righteous, entering into heaven, not because you're righteous, but because of the righteousness of Christ. Jesus came. He took on anguish for our comfort. He who is rich became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. We who were separated from God are brought close to him through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And he's defeated death. This passage talks about one who's raised from the dead. Jesus has actually been raised from the dead. He's defeated death and Hades. And so that those who trust in him have no fear of ever being there. He's defeated it. It's gone. And we can look forward to the resurrection. Pray with me as we close. Father, uh, we come to you humbly, knowing our sin is great, and yet your offer of mercy is far greater. You've done all that we might be forgiven, that we might draw near to you, and Lord, so we ask for your help, because our hearts are hard often. We pray that you would soften them. We pray that the comforts, riches, and pleasures of life, Lord, that they would not distract us, that they would not pull us away, but we'd be pulled towards you and the greatness of your glory, that we would treasure you above all things, that nothing else on earth would seem as good and lovely as you. Teach us, Lord, as your people. Teach us to walk in your ways. We pray this for the glory of your name and in your name. Amen.